Hey, welcome to Cornerstone Ministries Young Adult Podcast. We hope this serves as a resource for you as you seek, find, and grow in your walk with Jesus. Tune in for sermon audios from our young adult services and other original content. If you already have a home church, we're glad this can be another tool for you, but if not, we hope that you would check us out online at cornerstonelive.net or join us in person. Cornerstone is in Murraysville, Pennsylvania, and services are Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. Our young adult ministry gathers every other Tuesday at 7 p.m. Now let's dive into our new series taking us to the seven churches of Revelation. Father, I praise you. I thank you so much for the fact that not only have you blessed us in tangible ways as far as having a physical building to meet and, and to worship, um, but you've blessed us with opportunities to have spaces like this on our property to gather together uh, and kind of mix things up a little bit. I ask that as we, we dig into the Word, as we dig into sometimes what is a really confusing book of the Bible, that you would give us some clarity and some direction and uh, help us to see what you would have for us. I ask that we would see you and your truth, not me and my opinion as, as we dig into Revelation and that uh, we just praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so guys, we just finished our series on relational truths. Don't get it twisted. And diving into this series, going through the seven churches in Revelation, has anybody tried to study Revelation? Like one of you, two of you. How many of you are just utterly confused by Revelation? Okay, more so. And then I'm going to guess a lot of you are just like, I'm not even going to try. I'm not going to guess. I've never, I've never touched it. But guys, I do want to give you some background on Revelation to understand because ultimately when you actually look at the book of Revelation, depending on how, there are potentially like 21 different ways to interpret Revelation. But the letters to the seven churches in the first couple of chapters are pretty clear and straightforward. And we're going to kind of dig into that a little bit. So let me give you a little bit of overview. Revelation written by John the disciple, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the author of the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he's writing this from exile. He's the only disciple not to die for the faith, not to be martyred. So he's writing this from exile and he has this vision from the Lord. And it's written around uh, 95 AD. But guys, here's something to keep in mind. Like I know in media, we attribute the word apocalypse to like end times. But the word apocalypse actually comes from a Jewish form of literature, which is what Revelation is. And the Greek word uh, apokalus, it actually, it, this type of literature, it's filled, filled with symbolic dreams and visions. And what it actually means is an unveiling or uncovering. Because it even says in, in Revelation 1 verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And what Revelation ultimately is, is the drawing to a conclusion, a fulfillment of all of the prophecies of Scripture. So when we look at Revelation and we try and figure out, hey, are these future events? Are these things that have already happened? Are these things that are ongoing? That's why some of this can get so confusing because there's actually multiple different views on whether or not revelation has already happened, whether or not it's going to happen in the future. So we're not going to get into all of that in this series, but what I want to focus on is across these seven churches, there are some very specific applications for us. So in, in Revelation 1, you have this, this greeting given and you have the introduction, the concept of sevens. 
and this is an entirely different thing, but there's actually an entire theology of like numbers, which is really interesting. But Revelation uh, 1 verses 17 and 18, uh, it says this, it says, when I saw him, this is John, when he has this vision of God, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. And it says this, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Revelation 1 introduces obviously the rest of the prophecy, but you have this vision of Jesus holding seven stars in one hand, seven lampstands in another. Seven lampstands are representative of the seven churches. That's what we're digging into. The seven angels are most likely the leaders of those churches. The reason there's like this theological significance to seven is because seven is considered the number of completion. So you have seven stars, seven uh, golden lampstands, you have seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Okay, so you have all of these different layers of seven and it means completeness. And if you actually look into this like theology of numbers, three is the number of perfection, seven is the number of completeness. I don't know necessarily the specific representation of 12 and 40, but there's a whole consistent pattern throughout scripture of those numbers as well. But the whole point of this, this culmination of the story, the completeness, is revelation fits into that grander scheme of the story. So if you look at the whole of scripture, it can be broken down into a very simple story. Creation, the fall of man, sin entering into into our story, the striving, so all of the Old Testament, man's striving to return back to perfect unity with God. Then you have the redemption through Christ. And then ultimately, revelation is what? It's the restoring of God's creation back to perfect order. The fall of man destroys the perfect order of God's creation. Revelation is restoring back that perfect order. Okay? So to give you kind of a framework, the seven churches where they were sitting, it was actually modern day Turkey. And the reason that the seven churches in in the first couple of chapters of Revelation are in the order that they are. So here they are kind of along the the western uh, shores of Turkey. Is the order that the churches show up in Revelation is the order that the letter would have been sent. The route that it would have taken as it was being received by the different churches, the leaders in those churches, and then being read aloud to those communities of people. So the first church that we're introduced to is Ephesus. Okay, so where we're really going to be paying attention and and, and spending our time is Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. That's where we're really going to dig in. But a little bit of background on Ephesus. Ephesus was three miles inland from the mouth of the Castor River. And because of that location, it was the greatest harbor of Asia Minor. And it was on three completely different major trade routes. So imagine this just complete 
a, a hodgepodge of cultures and religions and backgrounds. And it also had the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana, one of the seven ancient, uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. So you have all these different religions and viewpoints that keep popping up in this area. And then Ephesus, obviously it has its own letter, uh, Ephesians, written by Paul, because you had Paul, you had Timothy, and you had John, all served and ministered at this church. So Ephesus was no small community of people. But what we're going to see as we dig into these seven churches is some of them had some serious issues to address. And remember, these are being addressed to the leaders of those churches, But what John was writing to were character issues, or sometimes he gave some praise and encouragement. So when we look at the seven churches, we're going to be able to examine our heart's position and say, okay, is is what John is describing of this church, could that be said of me? And some of those things are good, some of those things are bad. But let's dig into here. Revelation chapter 2. Uh, starting in verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, the leader of that church, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. Because all of these different religions, they're dealing with persecution, just a very frustrating, irritating location and season to try and walk faithfully with Jesus. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So here's what's true of the church in Ephesus. At this point, they were church kids. They knew how to spot false teaching. They detested it. And they had no problem with that. But here's what was difficult. They had begun to focus more so on righteous teaching and righteous action. Those are good things. But they prioritize righteous teaching and righteous action above a righteous heart. And here's where we we really need to kind of self-assess and check our own minds and hearts. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. I have this charge against you. I have this testimony that I have to bring to you. You, That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So I want to double back a little bit. So John starts out by saying, listen, you are fervent towards righteousness. I love that. 
You are fervent towards righteousness. That's a good thing. You're focusing on righteous teaching. You're focusing on righteous action. He doubles back later on. Go to that, jump to that next slide. And he says, where is it there? You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. The the Nicolaitans, followers of Nicholas. Nicholas was appointed to a position of teacher in the church, but then he went astray with heresy and false teaching. And the Nicolaitans were actually trying to almost assault the church in Ephesus with temptation. And they had replaced living in freedom with a license to do whatever the heck they wanted. So he's writing to the church in Ephesus saying, listen, I get it. You are staying fervent in pursuing righteousness. That's great. But two of my favorite books, one of them is Bo's Cafe. The other one is this. It's called The Heavenly Man. And it's a story of, uh, it's an autobiographical work. The guy's name is Lu Zhenying. I'm probably butchering that pronunciation. But he goes by Brother Yun. And throughout the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, he really kick-started the house church movement in China when persecution was super heavy. And a part of this guy's story, in, I think he was around like 32, 33. At one point, through arrests, malnourishment, he weighed in mid, like 65 pounds at like 32 years old from the amount of persecution and imprisonment he was experiencing. In the middle of his story, he had all these different moments where he was going out and he was trying to minister to other church planners, house church planners, and trying to lead Bible studies and worship services and preach. And he's trying to do so without getting arrested. And at one point, he feels like he needs to go to this meeting and his wife warns him not to, warns him not to go. One of his good friends says he has a, has a vision, says, hey, don't go. This is going to be your downfall. He ignores them. He goes to this meeting and he gets arrested on the way. And I want you guys to pay attention to this. I, I've kept this bookmarked because it's, been, it's become a staple for me and something I often remind myself of. Because I've been operating in my own strength for months, I was physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. My spiritual eyesight had grown dim, and my hearing dull. Pride had sprung up in my heart like a choking weed. Instead of obeying God's voice, I reasoned with human logic and based my decisions on my own wisdom. At this point, the first time I read this, I'm thinking, you were going to teach the word and minister. Like, what are you talking about? My coworkers had warned me not to stay at home, but I didn't heed their advice. I wasn't waiting upon the Lord with a pure heart. This was the root of my failure. I was tired, overworked, and backslidden in my heart. This is the part that really gets me. Ministry had become an idol. Working for God had taken the place of loving God. This is the charge that John gives to the church in Ephesus. You have forgotten your first love. And you have filled your life with good and righteous things, but those ultimately aren't the things that are going to lead to your righteousness. Those are not the things that are going to save you. So when John gives this charge, listen to this again. I know you are enduring, this is verse three, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. You are dealing with persecution coming from the Romans, coming from the Greeks. You are waiting patiently for the return of the Lord. That's great. You are doing great things. And this is where you start to read into this a little bit. 
Okay, we're not changing the text, but we're starting to figure out, okay, what does this mean for me? Have I been filling my life up with great things? I'm studying three chapters a day. You know, I'm praying for 10, 15 minutes in the morning, praying for some more time at night. I'm serving during one service. I'm attending another service. Those are all fantastic things. Verse 4, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And it's interesting because John, in I want to say 1 John, and I wasn't necessarily planning on talking about this. I love when the Holy Spirit shows up, but I wish he would prepare me a little more. At this point during the sermon, I wasn't able to recall a particular passage, but I knew it was in 1 John, and I wanted to give it to you now. 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Ah. All right, I'm going to say this, and hopefully one of you guys got it. But John in 1 John, he says this, If anyone thinks, if anyone says he, he does not sin, he is a liar. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If any says he does not sin, he, he makes God a liar. And now you see this in Revelation, and you get this word, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Pay attention to your sins. Remember where you're at. Remember the love that you received at first. And that passion that you responded with. And I'm kind of jumping back into our relationship series a little bit. And it's almost as, as if John is saying, hey, listen, you remember that honeymoon phase at the start of the relationship? Don't leave that. Where you saw perfection in the other person, you were willing to do whatever, whenever, in whatever capacity. And I see that even in my own marriage, in my own relationships. You know, there's all these jokes and stereotypes about how, it, what is it with women that as soon as you sit on the couch, hey, can you get me a glass of water? I was just standing up. I was just in the kitchen. You could have asked me five seconds ago. And Bo's shaking his head because he knows exactly what I'm talking about. Like, as soon as you sit down, it's like, oh, hey, can you get this? I'm like... You, you literally just watched me leave the kitchen. But you don't, have that, you don't have that frustration in the honeymoon phase. It's like, no, whatever you ask, whatever you ask, it doesn't matter the circumstances. And John's calling out the church in Ephesus and saying, you have fallen from that first love. You've stayed faithful to me. But your righteous actions and your desire for righteous teaching, it is good and I want that. But I, what I want first is your heart. Because the, the desire for righteous teaching, the desire for righteous action, they don't mean anything to me if I don't have your, your full attention. And here's what happens when we analyze the love of God. We usually respond in one of three, rate, one of three ways. We reject it. And I want you to think about this. The definition of rejection is to dismiss as inadequate, inappropriate, or not to one's taste. So especially if you've been in church in a while, especially if you've been in church for a while, you've come to accept that you are expected to be in church. You are expected to be in the Word. 
You're expected to be in prayer. But yet in your heart, in your mind, you have rejected the love of God. You have seen it as being inadequate because maybe you haven't experienced severe difficulty in your life. Maybe you're looking at the love of God and saying, hey, that's just not necessarily something I need right now, not something I need to fully embrace. But you maintain the pursuit of righteous things because you feel that's what ex- that is what is expected of you. Or potentially you just 100% you run from it. So you reject it. Maybe you haven't had those difficulties in life. You've, you've gotten to this place where it's not really something you need. It's not adequate for your life. Or you're on the other end of the spectrum. The difficulties that you've faced. The hurts that you've experienced. So you run from it and say the, the, the frustration, the hardship that I've gone through in my life. It's not worth it. These things that I've walked through, it's not worth it for me to fully dive into this. And I know, Kaylee, I'm making you jump back and forth. Go back to the end of that passage. I want you to look at this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, there's a massive theme throughout all of Revelation. You get into the seven seals. And I know I might be throwing some of you for a loop. Why are you talking about seals? No, no, like like a stamp seal and one of the seals one of them's broken and it talks about seeing the those martyred for the faith there is this theme throughout all of revelation and it's you conquer through sacrifice see we have this false notion that revelation you know apocalypse doomsday armageddon it's going to be this bloodbath and yeah there's going to be a lot of death in the end times for sure But Revelation 19, it talks about the rider on the white horse coming out of heaven. And from his mouth, a double-edged sword which to strike down the nations. There isn't going to be some big physical fist fight. Jesus is going to speak and in a word, wipe out Satan and his armies. He's going to wipe out the wicked nations of the world with his word. Up until that point, more and more believers in the end times are going to be martyred for the faith. And there's this theme in Revelation is you sacrifice in order to conquer. So when he says to the one who conquers, the one who is willing to out of a pure heart that I am your first love, the one who is willing to lay down everything and through that conquer, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So I will grant them eternal life. So your righteous actions, fighting for, the, for, for God's honor, as if he is some damsel in distress, and we've gotten the roles reversed drastically. So we prioritize righteous action and righteous teaching. Those are good things. Don't misunderstand me there. But if you aren't first willing to lay down your life for the gospel, for your first love, then those things mean absolutely nothing. So either we reject it, we run from it, or we reciprocate it. Because here's the beauty of the gospel kind of worked into Revelation here. Here's that encouragement that John is inserting into this, this message. And remember, this is Jesus 
in, in this vision, Jesus is speaking to John and saying, write these words. So these are Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus, saying, don't abandon your first love, because guess what? I haven't abandoned you, and I'm not going to abandon you. So are you going to respond to that first love, him prioritizing you, remaining faithful to you, sacrificing himself for you? Are you going to respond to that in kind? Or is our response going to be kind of a holier than thou, I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church? Or in utter humiliation, in utter transparency, be willing to acknowledge the fact that we have fallen from grace and prioritize Him as our first love. Because that, that passage in that book wrecked me. You have this guy who is, has already been arrested multiple times. He's in prison for preaching the gospel and yet he's repenting. And this is what's crazy to me. Look at his response. Look at Brother Young's response in that moment. Ministry had become an idol. Working for God had taken the place of loving God. I hid my condition from those who prayed for me and carried on in my own strength until God decided to intervene in his mercy and love. Dang. I was still getting up every morning at five o'clock and praying with other church leaders. I was still reading my Bible every day. I was doing these things out of obligation and habit and not from a willing heart flowing from my relationship with Jesus. And this dude in the middle of prison weeps and repents because he had forgotten his first love. And guys, the, the, uh, the temptation and the ability to drift from that, that is the steepest and slipperiest slope you could possibly be on. Because we don't even notice it, right? If you think about the last time you, you were in a new relationship, you don't even necessarily, necessarily notice when you've kind of shifted out of the honeymoon phase. It just kind of sneaks up on you. And if you've been around church for a while, you don't even really start to notice these little subtle moments where you're starting to compare your righteousness to somebody else's righteousness. These little subtle moments where you don't even realize like, oh, they don't have that verse memorized. I got that one down pat. Like, oh, what? You're not, you're not serving at, uh, at, at Vertical Camp this year? Like, oh, man, you're, so you have to step back from serving because you have to work a second job? And these little moments where we draw in comparison, these little moments where we start to elevate our own righteousness and we forget our first love. So John calls out Ephesus and he says, listen, your passion, your desire for righteousness is great. But what the Lord wants first and foremost is your heart and your commitment to that first love. So guys, as we continue going through these seven churches, some of them are going to encourage us, some of them are going to challenge us. But I hope you take time as you go through these, as we go through these, to self-assess. Because there's not a single one of these that you can't stack yourself up next to and say, where am I 
where is this letter, where is this word applying to me? Because these seven churches, again, there's seven of them because it's the number of completion. They are handpicked by God to stand as the example for all believers for all of time. So hopefully you're finding some truth as we, uh, as we go through this series. But let's pray together and then we'll spend a little time in worship. Father, I praise you. I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the book of Revelation. I thank you for giving John that vision. As he sat alone in exile in Patmos, you gave him this, this incredible, unimaginable vision and we try to read it, we try to study it, and sometimes it just confuses us. But God, let us not get caught up in this deep book that we don't miss what you're trying to speak through it to us. And you've used the church in Ephesus in so many ways, and you're trying to speak through their example and reach out to us and call us to prioritize you to prioritize a deep, deep love for you, not just righteous action. Frankly, it's easier, it's easier to read your Bible for 30 minutes and pray for an hour every day than it is to sacrificially love God and keep Him as the priority of your life. But God, would you help us to pursue a righteous heart that we would rigorously run after you and we let our actions, we let our habits follow afterward. But God, we thank you for the time together, for the beautiful weather you've given us. And I ask that as we go into a, a brief time of worship together, that you would be working on our hearts to prioritize our love for you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message. For more information on the Young Adult Ministry, follow us on Instagram or you can email youngadults at cornerstonelive.net.